ora and welcome to Cancer Conversations with me, Helen King, journalist and cancer survivor, brought to you by Look Good, Feel Better and Dry July. Hello and welcome back to Cancer Conversations. How would you describe cancer? When I came across my guest's book, The Big Ordeal, I knew I had to have her on the podcast because I think The Big Ordeal summarizes cancer so well. Cynthia Hayes was inspired to write the book after her experience with uterine cancer. The book explains the science behind the emotions we feel, why we feel them, and perhaps most importantly, how to cope with them. Cynthia interviewed over a hundred patients, along with caregivers, oncologists, neuroscientists, and other experts to find the answers so many of us seek after we've been diagnosed with cancer. During our chat, we talked about the moment of terror when you're told you have cancer, why it's okay not to cope, the impact of cancer on your brain and nervous system, and how to manage the big ordeal. Let's welcome Cynthia to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Helen. It's a real pleasure to be here. My favorite topic to talk about, and I'm delighted to be able to to share. I like to set the scene a little bit because I feel like for so many of us, when we've had a cancer diagnosis, there's before cancer and then there's after cancer. So tell me who was Cynthia before your cancer diagnosis? That's such an interesting question because Cynthia was in transition before cancer and still trying to figure that out. So after uh, 25 years of running my own management consulting business and raising a couple of fabulous kids, I uh, decided to take a break and do something different and was getting ready to write the great American novel or some such thing. I had gone in-house for one of my clients for the last couple of years of my career and was reminded why it was that I like to work for myself as opposed to having a boss. <laughs> I was just, I'd left that job and I was trying to write every day and trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do next? What's next in my life? And then it turns out cancer was. <laughs> that was a big surprise. It wasn't, it wasn't part of the plan. No, it was not part of the plan. And I am somebody who likes the plan and likes to have adventures too. But this was not anything I would have planned, nor was it an adventure that I would have wanted to take. <laughs> yeah. When you look back, were there any symptoms that you or feelings in your body that you look back and go, oh, I think that was my body telling me or that was a symptom? Not really. And it's very funny because the insurance company nurse who called asked a question about the exact same thing. And one of the questions then that she prided me with was, had there been any unexplained weight loss? And I'm thinking, no, God damn it. I worked really hard to lose that five pounds. Don't tell me that was just the cancer talking. <laughs> so maybe there was that. I thought it was just because I was being so diligent about my diet and exercise routines. <laughs> So, no, and and in fact, my cancer was diagnosed sort of on a whim. I was, you know, as I said, I was in this transitionary period in my life, and I wasn't as focused on scheduling those maintenance appointments as I would normally have been. And at the time, the American press was saying you really only needed to see your gynecologist every two years and have a pap smear every two years. So I was being sort of lackadaisical about getting in to see my, um, my GYN. And the office actually called me and said, hey, it's been over a year. Get your butt in here. And I said, oh, yeah, but I would have had two years. And they said, I don't care about the two-year guidance. We need to see you every year. Get in here. 
So I scheduled an appointment. It was the end of the summer. I made it for September. And, um, you know, went in and the doctor said, how are you feeling? I feel great. Any symptoms? I don't have any. I'm fine. Everything's great. And the exam itself was unremarkable. She sent me home. And a week later, I got a phone call from the doctor's office, and I assumed it was related to a billing issue or something, and answered the phone nonchalantly while I continued. My daughter and I were going out that night, with big fancy schmancy ball thing, and we needed hair done and nails done. And we just left the hair salon on our way to the nail salon, and the phone rings, and it's my gynecologist. And I, I answer without thinking. And the doctor says, I'm in the middle of a delivery, but I just saw your results. And I don't like what I'm seeing on your pap smear. You need to get in here right away for a biopsy. There's some blah, blah, blah cells. And I said, yeah, okay, no big deal. Fine. I'll see you next week. And she signed off, go back and deliver her baby. And I went on my merry way to the nail salon. And I had 30 seconds before they commanded my hand to be presented. And I Googled what those blah, blah, blah cells were that she mentioned. And I was like, holy crap. I'm going to die of cancer because not only were they the precursor cells of, of a particular type of cancer, but that cancer was a very aggressive cancer with very bad odds. It was a serous carcinoma, it was a high-grade, fast-growth cancer. And I just went into an instant panic. And if you look at the pictures from that evening, hair was perfect, nails were beautiful, dress was gorgeous. Cynthia was not there. <laughs> Cynthia was in cancer land. So yeah, just such a panic. Um, yeah. Oh gosh, there's so much there that I relate to, and I just the image of your doctor stepping away from your baby <laughs> to make this phone call, and but also the idea that we are often just going about our daily lives. And I had a different cancer to you with breast cancer, but there were no indications. Like I didn't feel sick. There was I was a bit tired, but there was no indication that there was something really wrong in my body and that instant feeling of oh my god I'm going to die it's oh it's quite visceral I can remember that and feel that and that panic of oh my gosh this is what's going on yeah and it is so odd because most other diagnoses come after a period of feeling bad and then the doctor treats you and you start to feel better but with cancer you feel fine they give you a diagnosis, and then they treat you, and you feel bad. <laughs> you feel so much worse when you're undergoing treatment. <laughs> so it's just, it's an upside-down experience that causes all sorts of emotional side effects. Oh, it really does. And oh, absolutely, that idea that one day you're walking around feeling pretty good about yourself, and then it's the treatment for this hideous disease that actually is what makes you feel so sick. And I know that the treatment, you had chemotherapy and you had radiation. And it's something that I find funny in your story is how you dealt with steroids. Because steroids for me, I went insane. <laughs> it was, yeah, but I, because you were, you are a very active person and it sounds like you embraced that energy that the steroids gave you. That's right. You know, steroids are a common part of many chemotherapy treatments. And some immunotherapies involve steroid use as well. And doctors use the steroids because they make the chemotherapy more effective and also because it reduces the likelihood that we're going to have some type of allergic reaction to the, to the steroids. And typically in a treatment course, they'll give you 
a couple of doses to take at home, pills to take at home. But then as part of the chemo infusion, they'll give you some steroids. Dexamethasone is usually the steroid of choice. It's like you're on these uppers for three or four days. Oh, and then as they usually continue afterwards to give you the oral steroids for another day, maybe 48 hours afterwards. But the steroids take a while to leave your system too. So you're on the this course of uppers and then all of a sudden you come crashing down. And for me, I knew that I was going to feel after the first chemo, uh, round of chemo, I knew that I was going to feel okay, a little off maybe on the day I received chemo, but mostly okay. And that I would be high as a kite on the steroids on uh, the day after treatment. And so that would be my day to go grocery shopping, do the housekeeping that I needed to do, run around like a crazy person, see friends and take advantage of that energy. Because then Saturday and Sunday, I, my treatments were on Thursday, Saturday and Sunday, you were just not getting me off that couch. Um, I was just immobilized to get up and get some ginger or something for the queasiness. And it was never more than queasiness. But then Monday, as those steroids would begin to leave my system, it was an emotional crash. And I didn't know that it was the steroids. I didn't know that it was, I'm crashing after this, this high of all those steroids until like the third or fourth round. I asked my doctor, why is it that I always feel so bad on, on day four or day five? And I was like, oh, I get it now. And I was artificially emotionally inflated <laughs> and now I am deflated and that's why I'm crying in the shower. It was really interesting going through the cancer experience. I had the sense that I was the only one who felt this way. And it was only in the fourth or fifth round of treatment. I was at the gym. I was bald totally naked face, no eyebrows or eyelashes, a little puffy from all the steroids. Obviously, a cancer patient. Of course, you're not wearing a wig or fooling anybody when you're at the gym. And I was sitting there on a bike trying desperately to make the wheels of that exercise bike go around and just not getting anywhere, not getting any traction. And a total stranger comes and sits on the bike beside me and uh, starts telling me his cancer story. And obviously, I was a cancer patient, but I had no reason to believe or know that he was also a cancer patient. And it turns out his cancer was 15 years earlier, and it was melanoma, and it was totally different circumstances. And yet we shared so much, the sense of isolation, the sense of shock and dismay at the uh, diagnosis, the pressure to make a decision and come up with a plan, and then the sense of relief when the, finally the plan was in motion. And then the building sense of, oh my God, my life is out of control. I am a slave to the cancer protocol. I have no agency over my life anymore. And then the growing confusion as the chemo brain sets in. And it's, we shared so much. And it just, it got me really thankful. If the cancer experience is so common, why don't we know what it is? Why don't we anticipate those emotions? And why in God's name doesn't anybody talk about it? So you can get the help that you need, as opposed to feeling like you are the only one who is so weak that you can't smile and be strong through cancer. And of course, we've conflated the experience of being a cancer patient and the need to continue to march forward. And sometimes against all odds, we need to march forward with the idea of battling in the scientific community and research community of let's raise funds, let's march for Pinktober, let's find that cancer moonshot in order to find new solutions, which yes, please do. But my individual process is not a battle. My individual process is an emotional and physical ordeal that I have to get through. 
but it's not a battle that I'm going to win or lose because of something I do. Because again, it's out of my control. Cancer, unfortunately, controls much more of us than we would like to admit. There are all sorts of studies that say cutting out smoking and eating better and exercising better, those things are going to help you. Yeah, they're going to help you. They're going to improve your immune system, reduce the likelihood of mutations. But mutations happen. Cancer happens. There are people that are living the good life and get cancer. And there are people that are abusing every one of those guidelines and never get cancer. And so it's not it's not something that we can control. And so I just hate it when I see some uh, headline saying so-and-so lost her battle with cancer. No, he didn't lose. Cancer lost her. The medical community didn't do what they needed to do. We haven't found the miracle cure yet, but she didn't lose. It wasn't her battle. She was doing what she needed to do. So, yeah. That's the. <laughs> I love this so much. I think I know people can't see me, but Cynthia's probably being watched, <laughs> nodding my head and making expressive gestures because, oh my gosh, all of this. And it's funny you mentioned that idea of the way that cancer is talked about in the the wider community or within our our societies because. I agree with all of that and this idea that we're meant to be these really strong people that talk positively and that if someone is being philosophical and positive about their cancer experience, that's really encouraged. And I think, oh man, where's the space for us to actually just break down or to have that emotional release and stuff because it happens. And I think that yeah, where there's just some of honesty in some ways of saying actually yeah. what it means to be someone living with cancer or going through a cancer experience is exactly as you say, this roller coaster of highs and lows and fear and anger. And that's the cancer experience. That's right. So I just yeah, and I think you you really captured, I guess that part of this person coming up to you, you start to recognize, oh, okay, yeah, that person's going through cancer and you see it. Because one of the things that I really started to think about when I was going through treatment was how important connection and community are. And I think when you're going through cancer, that connection and community are other people who are going through it. And that becomes so important because those people get it. They get the still awake at 3 a.m. contemplating your mortality. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that the, one of the major disservices that the lack of openness about the emotional roller coaster of, of cancer it does for us is that it, it prevents us from understanding that it's perfectly normal to feel this way and that other cancer patients are going through the same thing and that there is community and support and resources. And I mean, there's so much out there, but we don't know that it's okay to ask for help. And so we don't go and find the help that we need and deserve. And we're doing a little bit better job these days talking about emotions in public. But generally speaking, people don't talk about cancer and people don't talk about emotional health. So we're certainly not going to talk about the emotional health of cancer patients. I was surprised. My yeah, my doctor used to refer to me as one badass cancer patient. And I know that I always like to project a sense of I'm in control and I can handle anything and whatever. And so part of that is on me because I was not communicating that I needed any help and support. But my doctor was actually 
a founding doctor of a support program that is a peer mentor program where women who have been through gynecologic cancer actually mentor newly diagnosed patients. He never told me that this program existed. And he's the one who founded it. (laughs) Why didn't you tell me about this? And it was only after I was busy writing the book and looking for resources and looking for for patients to interview that he said, oh, well, you should reach out to these folks because they have lots of patients. It's like, why didn't you tell me about this before? And again, I didn't know that it was okay to need. So I didn't know to ask. And I certainly didn't know that not only was there this support program, but there were just infinite support programs out there. And I sort of feel like when we get a cancer diagnosis, somebody ought to hand us a piece of paper that says, your emotions are going to go like this. And when you're feeling low, here's who you should contact. Here are five different resources. And oh, by the way, you're going to feel like you're on a roller coaster because there are physical drivers of emotional health that are just wackadoo right now because of the presence of cancer and the treatment and the fact that the treatment is working and killing off all those cells. And so there's all of this physical stuff going on that drives the emotional response. And that's why you're going to feel emotional, not because you're weak or pathetic, but because it's a typical and productive response to what's happening in your body. Nobody ever tells you that. They really don't. I feel this is a really a good segue almost into the big ordeal because I think the big ordeal is just the perfect way to describe cancer. I love this title because that that (laughs) encompasses what cancer is. You can insert the expletive of your choice in the middle of that. (laughs) Exactly. And I sometimes wonder as well, because I speak to a lot of people who have had cancer or going through it, that sometimes when we're really competent, when maybe people have come from a career background or you've run your family or for men who have been in that sort of masculine world where they can't show emotion, that people assume you're okay because they see you as this confident, competent person who, ah, they're really strong, they're doing it. Where inside you may be just crumpled <laughs> and not coping. And so, yeah, I would love to know more about that process of writing the book and hearing other people's stories. Sure. After, after that encounter on the, on the bikes at the gym, I ended up talking to other friends and then expanding and expanding the circle of people that I spoke with. And I ended up speaking with over 100 cancer patients and caregivers, and also a number of oncologists and neurologists and psychologists, and ultimately even a a neuroscientist to try and understand exactly what's going on and why it's going on, and then most importantly, what to do about it. And for me, what was most important was to understand that you could check it out by what phase of the process you were in, and that the emotions in each phase were somewhat predictable. And of course, we're all different. We have different DNAs, we have different lived experiences, We have different cultural norms about what is an appropriate way to express an emotion and different ways of internalizing and actually feeling those emotions. But the what I learned through my research, and of course, I wasn't inventing this out of whole cloth. There were lots of scientific studies that had been done beforehand about the emotional turmoil of cancer. But what I tried to do was to bring it home through all of these patient stories. And what I found was that for the most part, when people are 
first diagnosed, the overwhelming response is an incredible stress reaction. Our cortisol levels spike, our stress hormones are just dumping on us. And that ends the brain from being able to hear anything other than the I'm going to die part of cancer. So a very common experience is that patients hear the diagnosis, they hear cancer, they hear in the back of their head, I'm going to die. And they tune out the entire rest of the conversation from that first meeting. And that's because our bodies are responding with that influx of adrenaline to an immediate threat. It's, oh my God, I need to get away from the lion who's chasing me. And you don't see the fact that the leaves are turning orange and it's a beautiful day and the sky is bright blue. No, you're thinking, I have to get away from that, from that lion. And so that same sort of response is pretty typical. And then, of course, we go home and we can't sleep because all we can do is think about that lion who's chasing us. And so that anxiety and stress are really high. And then, of course, we have to shift gears because we actually have to find a doctor. We get a bunch of additional testing done, come up with a game plan for treating the cancer and causes and drives a, a real change in our brain chemistry because now we can't worry about the lion. We have to worry about the logistics of getting away from the lion. We have to start planning and that involves tapping into a different part of the brain. And so a lot of people feel a tremendous sense of focus and then ultimately relief when they do finally have that plan. And then the emotions begin to unwind from there. But it was astonishing to me just how consistent the experience was from phase to phase. And it was really only in talking with a neuroscientist that I really came to understand what was driving a lot of this and why. And I kept asking my medical team, so why am I feeling this? Why am I feeling this? And they kept throwing up their hands and saying, Cynthia, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you can help you. Maybe you can help you. And what was explained to me by the neuroscientist is that there's a class of proteins in our bodies called cytokines, which allow the immune system to communicate with itself. And there are pro-inflammatory cytokines and anti-inflammatory cytokines, and they are supposed to be in balance. But when you get a paper cut, the pro-inflammatory cytokines are released and they go to the site and they say, hey, guys, we need some platelets here to seal up this wound. We need some white blood cells to get rid of any uh, potential infection. And so your finger gets a little swollen and it's all of those cytokines and all of those additional cells there that are driving that inflammation. And then as the cut heals, the anti-inflammatory cytokines reverse that process. If a paper cut causes an increase in pro-inflammatory cytokines, just imagine what massive abdominal surgery will do to you. And it turns out that the presence of cancer causes pro-inflammatory cytokines to be released surgery does, chemotherapy does, radiation therapy does, the dying off of cancer cells and the body processing those dead cancer cells causes pro-inflammatory cytokines to be released. And as all of these pro-inflammatory cytokines are released in the body, it gets registered in the brain as we're in big danger. We are so sick. We could not get away from that lion if he started chasing us. And so we better go back to bed and pull the covers over our heads and just stay there. And it is that sickness behavior which we interpret as, or we express as depression, as chemo brain, as the confusion, as the general fatigue and weakness and self-pity, because that's what our bodies are telling us. It's go back to bed and pull the covers up. You are not well enough to get out there and defend yourself. And so it takes a really long time 
to reverse that process. And in fact, you know, the physical healing process after major surgery or chemo and radiation can take anywhere from six to 18 months, depending upon our bodies and, and what exactly has happened. And then the emotional recovery only happens after that, because it's only after that that the cytokines can rebalance themselves. No wonder we're all a mess for a couple of years after the cancer diagnosis. And again, because we don't talk about this, we don't understand that there are physical drivers of it. Now, that doesn't mean that we all have to just crawl into bed and suck our thumbs for, for two years because we've got cancer. But it means that there's a physical driver of why we're feeling the way we do. And just like, you know, you break your leg, of course your leg hurts. And so you've asked the doctor for help. It's like, you've got cancer. Of course your emotions hurt. So ask for help. It's a simple equation, but because we don't think of it that way, we don't know to ask. My mind has just been blown. (laughs) (laughs) I went through exactly the same thing that, oh my God, I'm going to die. That exact thought and not being able to sleep. And as you're describing that, my little brain is going, whoa, that that makes so much sense. Because I I had about 18 months of treatment. I had immunotherapy because I had Mm-hmm. Her two positive breast cancer, so I had a drug mm-hmm. called Herceptin, oh. and I also had a couple of other surgeries because my body just broke down, and I had to have repairs. Basically, mm-hmm. yeah. things happened yeah. during chemo. Yeah. Yeah. And oh gosh, I sort of have so much more compassion for myself when you're talking about that because yeah, that's yeah, like that's a big yeah, deal go through and. It, it is more deal. And if you've got all of that cytokine activity, and then you've got the steroids that are going up and down and up and down, making you absolutely nuts. And then a lot of us, we used to have hormones. Now we don't have hormones. That's a big change, and our bodies are adjusting to that. Or maybe we're having off and on hormones. So there's just there's so many different changes going on in our bodies as a result of cancer and cancer treatment that, of course, there's a psychological impact. And if we connect the physical to the psychological, it allows us to understand that, of course, this is happening. Of course, it's normal to feel this way. And as I said, that doesn't mean that you have to just wallow in that feeling. There are things you can do to help yourself. One of the things that I came to understand was that Exercise is really, really good for you. Why is it good for you? One is it stimulates the immune system. Two is that it releases endorphins, which help to counter all of those negative psychological impacts. And three is it tells your body that it needs to produce more red blood cells. And our bodies produce just the right amount of red blood cells to help us get through what we need to do every day. But if you want to have reserves of red blood cells, which, oh, by the way, chemo is killing every time you take a chemo or immunotherapy or radiation therapy, you're just killing off those red blood cells left and right. And our bodies are pretty good about making new ones all of the time, but it will make just as much as we need to get through our day. And if our day revolves around lying on the couch, then our bodies are only going to make as much as we need to lie around on the couch. But if we actually force ourselves to go for a walk, and I'm not saying... 30 miles and saying like around the block once or twice if you can do it. That tells the body to make a little bit more red blood cells, a little bit more energy for the next day. And so you can build your way back. So exercise helps. Diet helps. A good night's sleep helps. 
Laughter helps. Watch a comedy instead of a tragedy. Hugs really help. Kissing really helps. Get a little oxytocin and endorphins going through your system. So there are things that we can do to help us, but it also helps to have some other coping mechanisms for the days when you can't find a way to laugh and there's nobody around to give you a hug and all you want to do is cry. I mean, you don't have enough energy to get out there and take a walk. So what do you do? In the book, I like to talk about three different types of coping mechanisms. There's coping by thinking, coping by doing, and coping by mind-body mechanisms. And the coping by thinking is the one that I come by naturally. It's let me try to solve this problem and break it down into smaller and smaller pieces. Let me prioritize, let me make lists. Let me try and structure the problem so I can manage it better. Some of us find that method works very well. Others, definitely much more on the physical coping, and that is take a bath, get a massage, go for that walk, go sit in the garden and smell the flowers and trees, plop yourself down by the ocean, pretend the cars going by in the highway are ocean waves, and give yourself a physical break. And then mind-body coping is meditation and prayer and Tai Chi and yoga and even things like knitting where you are focused on so completely on what you're doing and what you're doing involves both a physical and a a brainwave component that uh, it actually has been proven to lower the stress hormones in your body and can really then help you go back and more effectively deal with the mental or, or physical. Three different toolboxes to have at your disposal because sometimes we need them all. Oh, absolutely. I love that as well. And I wish I'd known so stuff earlier but I thinking back I did go for walks sometimes it was to the letterbox and back because that's what I could cope with but I yeah my partner would often come over and, and would walk around the block and even if you have to sit down and along the way that's okay it was what I found it was just about yeah getting up and getting out because I think part of that is is feeling a bit more empowered as well. You hit it on the head, really, that you feel so powerless at times when you're going through cancer. So I love that idea of getting back to your body or doing things that take you out of your head. If you're someone like me who can go down the rabbit holes, it's good to do things that are outside of your head at times. You've mentioned, you know, you're a mum and obviously our family and friends are a big part of this cancer process. And I just wanted to touch on how did you navigate that with your family? Have they been part of this process of learning to deal with things or the psychological impact? Have they been part of that journey with you? That's a really interesting question. And my husband and son and daughter are such different people. Each needed to come at it from their own perspective. So at the time, my son was living in San Francisco. My daughter was had just graduated from college and was home for the year studying for law school admission exams and preparing to apply to law school, never thinking that her role was going to shift in a major way um, that year. And I think she actually came with me. She was with me when I first got the news. And then she came with me for the biopsy because the doctor had said, somebody will need to come along with you. And my husband is not real good with needles and sickness and whatnot. So he didn't want to be the one. (laughs) So so my daughter came. And um, she knew something was going on. But she was taking the uh, law school entrance exam 
three days, four days after my biopsy. And then it was her college reunion weekend or something. And she was going right from the entrance exam to the airport. And I got the diagnosis, the, the confirmation that it was cancer on Monday morning. And she wasn't home yet from her reunion weekend. My son was out in California. It was six o'clock in the morning when I was getting a phone call. And my husband was in the dentist chair with a mouth full of cotton. (laughs) It was a difficult moment to say the least. And, uh, And what my husband and I decided was that we shouldn't tell our daughter until she got home. We should let her have her weekend because life was going to change for her. And we couldn't tell my son without telling my daughter. So we just had to sit on the news for 24 hours, which was actually good because it gave me time then to really focus on, okay, I need to find doctors before I had to deal with the emotional outfall from um, sharing with my kids. And my husband obviously took the cotton out of his mouth and came up and was by my side as we went to multiple doctor visits and tried to find a doctor and was by my side through the surgery. It was very helpful, in fact, that my daughter was home because she would sit on the couch with me for hours at a time. She'd be doing her law school applications and I'd be staring at the face, but at least we were there. And it was hard, I think, on my son because he was so far away. And uh, it was a while before he could come home to actually see how I was dealing with all the cancer and just and to see it in person. But it was interesting because we actually we had a family trip planned for I guess it was a week after the confirmation. We were supposed to be going on a wine tasting tour out in California, and the surgeon that I chose said you should keep that plan. We'll operate when you get back. Go and enjoy. Drink as much wine as you want. We'll deal with this when when you get back. And that was, I was great because I was with my husband and daughter and son and my dearest cousin and her family while I was digesting this news. So I was just thoroughly embraced by family. But then came back and had the surgery and it was a few weeks before my son could get home and see for himself that I was okay. And so I think it was hard for him. I did have a lot of support. My mom at the time was 90 years old, so I was really hesitant to tell her too much. I didn't want to worry her. And it was really, it was interesting in one of our last conversations before before she passed away. I don't think I appreciated how much you went through with cancer until I read your book. And I thought about, and I said, mom, that's because I didn't tell you. <laughs> I was really hesitant to to share with her just because she was so old and so fragile at that point. I think having family around is very helpful. I think it's, I was lucky to have such loving family. A number of friends stepped in, some friends who I would have expected to step in didn't step in. And it's a interesting challenge because we do have such an emotional response as loving care uh, givers to cancer. And we bring our own fears and expectations to that caregiving experience. And so some people just were not able to be there because of their own fears and, and discomfort with a cancer diagnosis, with their own challenges around having the supportive conversation. Some people were very, take charge, I'll do this for you. But maybe I don't want you to do that. Maybe I don't want you to do that for me. Maybe I don't want that done for me. There's all sorts of ways that one could say, would it be helpful if I did X, Y, and Z, as opposed to just jumping in and doing. And again, that that sense of agency that we lose during the cancer experience where we're no longer in control of our own lives. Some people in the 
attempt to be helpful actually deprive us further of that that sense of agency. Interesting experience. Oh, absolutely. I feel like we could do a whole episode on the family and freedom of response to cat. <laughs> it's a biggie. And yeah. yeah, I certainly experienced that. But I, something that really came to mind as you were talking, because I mentioned before that my mother had endometrial cancer 15, yeah, about 15 years ago. And I think there is something about your mum getting sick that is, it's almost like a primal reaction because, yeah, you that's mum. And I could just remember breaking down and crying for a day because it's such a frightening thing. And now I understand it from my own experience. And I think it must be even harder when you are mum going through it because you're so used to being the one that comforts others and all of a sudden, yeah, the kind of, I guess, the rock in the family is the one that needs to be looked after. And it's such an interesting time, too, because a lot of family roles yeah. shift when there is a major illness and a caretaking situation. It's one thing for somebody else to step in and do the laundry or the cooking or whatever. But but yeah, that being that emotional rock, yeah. you still want to be that rock. You don't want to give up that. But you don't have the, the wherewithal to do that. And you also worry, am I going to get that back? How am I going to recreate that role for myself if I give up along the way? So I think it's a great opportunity for others around to appreciate all that you do by yes. all of a sudden yes. you're not doing it. But it's also it's a challenge for everyone to figure out what is the right balance and how do I care for mom while still acknowledging that she's mom. How do I balance my need for mom with her need for support? So oh. yeah, challenging time, challenging time for all. I think to sort of finish on, just going to ask you, what advice would you give to someone facing cancer? And my instant reaction now is they need to read the big old deal. <laughs> <laughs> because everyone needs to know as you're going through this experience that what you're going through is normal. But what what top three things would you say to someone who is facing a cancer diagnosis or is out the other end and maybe feeling but they don't know what to do or how to take that first step into healing? I think the first thing that I would say is to I would want somebody to understand that what they're feeling is perfectly normal. It is okay to feel what you're feeling and it is an expected part of the cancer process just as pain with a broken bone is an expected part of the process and knowing that it's an expected part of the process all sorts of resources have been created to help in the process and so figure out what you need and then go and find it because it exists it's out there there is so much help and support and the third thing is to know that your emotions are going to change. You're not always going to feel the way you feel today. And so much of what you feel today is driven by physical things in your body that are also going to change. And so to a certain extent, you just need to go with it. You just need to recognize that this is how I feel today. This is all I can do today. This is what's going on today. And then tomorrow will be different. And let's hope that it's better. And often it will be. No, it's such good advice. And I will put all the all your links and things in the show notes because I'm sure after this, people will <laughs> check out the book and find out more about what you do. 
but just quickly, where can we find you? Where can people connect with you? So the, the easiest thing to do is to go to my website, thebigordeal.com, and there's a lot of great information and resources available right there. And from the website, you can link to and purchase my book, The Big Ordeal. But the website is the way to go. And I love hearing from readers and patients and caregivers from all over the world. So there's a contact link there. Feel free to reach out anytime. Uh, you can also follow me on Facebook and on Instagram. And it's uh, cancer dot uh, the big ordeal. Oh, lovely! So try to uh, try to be consistent. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me. I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, and my brain has had a few explosions of learning things. So thank you so much. It's been my pleasure, Helen. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me to come and join you. Thanks for joining me. Next week we're talking about returning to work after cancer treatment. This can be a huge event for many of us. My guest and I have both gone back to full-time work. I've only returned back to full-time work for the first time in five years since my initial diagnosis. We share what it's like to navigate menopause, chemo brain, and figuring out our new normal. See you next time.